James chapter 1. And I'm going to re- read and preach from this uh, whole first chapter. I don't think it'll be especially long. Uh, I don't want to disappoint you, but anyway, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let, her, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, or lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted, when he is drawn away of his own lust, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of fruits, first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, or a mirror, of course. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Our message this morning is titled, The Production of Pure Religion. 
Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for this opportunity today. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the promise of your presence here in our midst. And Lord, we really need you to speak to our hearts. I know this afternoon is after a meal. But I pray that you give us attentive minds, sensitive hearts, that our spirits would be dealt with by the Holy Spirit and that you would have your way in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Really, one of the great joys of, of my life is to have been allowed to participate in his work in the planning of Lighthouse Baptist Church. Uh, the souls here are very dear to me, just like the ones who were here at the beginning. And life has been much sweeter for me because Calvary Baptist Church is a sister church of like precious faith with which we can fellowship and who have been an encouragement to us. Of course, the life of this church has not been without difficulties and challenges and heartaches. You know, when Paul stopped into Lystra and to Iconium, it says this in Acts 14.22. It said he was confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Just a few days prior to that, Paul was stoned, bloodied, left on the ground for dead, but he wasn't. Uh, Some religious Jews had tried to kill him. He got up, returned to his home church there in Antioch, where he fellowshiped and he ministered before facing the next conflict was Acts 15, a doctrinal problem that two churches, the church of Jerusalem and the church of Antioch, uh, had to deal with. And so this is the common lot of life, and James talks about that. In fact, I believe that it's in that setting that I just described about Paul and about that time that James wrote the letter that we're looking at this afternoon. I believe that James, there's some dispute about these things, not as clear as some others, but I believe that James is a half-brother of Jesus, that he became the pastor at Jerusalem Baptist Church there, and that he had seen the severe persecution that scattered hundreds of his sheep there from that church all over Israel. Uh, He'd already become a pastor when uh, James, the brother of John, was beheaded for his faith. He was a guy that had been a Jew all of his life, but he didn't get saved until after his brother Jesus rose from the dead. It's probably the most Jewish of all the New Testament letters. And this man has a lot to teach us in this letter that he wrote to scattered church members. Now, he knew they were facing great trials, And, of course, God knew that other Christians down through the centuries, including us, would have need of this essential truth that's recorded in this first chapter in order to successfully face similar trials. And so today, Lighthouse and Calvary, and indeed many of the churches in our nation have faced uh, unique trials this year. But God has given us the very truth that has the power to produce genuine, soul-saving faith and fruit in our lives. And what this chapter simply teaches 
is that if Christians are going to have pure religion that triumphs over severe trials and temptations, that we must receive Bible preaching in meekness and submissively practice what's taught. And so I want to, I'll just give you the outline to give you an idea of how this is going, but in the first part of the chapter, we have problematic challenges for a persecuted people. And then we have the possibility of pure practical religion. And then the largest section of the chapter deals with the practice that produces pure religion. We take the first and the problematic challenges. There are several uh, here listed at the first part of the chapter. Number one, in verse one, these are people who have been driven from their homes. It says in verse one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now in First Timothy three twelve, we're told, "Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." It's not any wavering. That's an absolute fact. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And these people that received this letter were Jewish Christians. I believe they are from the church there in Jerusalem. They'd fled their homes. They'd fled their business. They'd fled their, their families and everything. They had now settled and started other churches, evangelizing those around them. And James is writing to them in their different churches, people that used to be his church members, to give them some teaching. Uh, I dare say, I don't know everybody's life, but probably none of us has yet faced that kind of hardship, having to flee our homes and leave them behind. But it is common to other saints around the world. Secondly, they had adverse trials. They were surrounded by adverse trials. Verse 2 my brethren, count it all joy and you fall into diverse temptations, all kinds of trials. You know, I think about, it um, seemed like my life was pretty calm, pretty regular, wonderfully mundane about two years ago. And then everything has changed since then. COVID came along. For other people, it's things like a family breakdown, storms, sickness government intervention, things like that. There are trials of every sort. And so life changes. You may lose your health or somebody in your family. Your job may be affected. I think about all the people who have lost jobs in the last year and a half or so. Um, the challenge, these things challenge our obedience to the faith that God has given to us. They, they put us in new places. We face things we've not faced before. Divers, tile, divers temptations, they're, they were going through that. So they were driven from their homes. They had multiple temptations. And James addresses them as people who need uncommon wisdom. In verse 5, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Um, you young people, you understand that life becomes more complex as you get older. And today's grandfather's, well, no, grandparents' day. Uh, grandparents' day. Well, that means you've got grown children who are so 
much more wise than their grandparents are. But you know, you your friends start dying when you get my age. That's something you don't usually have to deal with when you're younger. Um, it becomes more and more complex. And the way our society is changing and is going to continue to change, I believe, we're going to be facing things that we haven't faced, and we're going to need wisdom to deal with things we've never faced before. Different things, unusual things. And they needed wisdom. You know, if, if your spouse dies, that's the kind of wisdom you haven't had to face before. And so he addresses that, a need of uncommon wisdom. He said they, he referred to them as being hindered by unstable faith. Verse 6, let him that ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavered is like a wave of the sea, driven of the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You know, one of the first things that usually happens, it takes a new Christian by surprise, is it? All of a sudden he finds out that people that were real close to him don't like him anymore or her. And so it's the first time in their lives they have to make a choice between loving and serving the Lord or having that, trying to maintain that same type close relationship with their family or with people that were their best buddies and so forth. And all of a sudden, that faith doesn't seem quite as solid. It doesn't seem as quite as clear as it did before when it involves your family, when it involves finances, just because you're trying to live for the Lord. You know, Peter was a very brave, very bold man, a man with tremendous faith. He walked on water, but when he was challenged by three maids, three young girls, he didn't pass the test. His faith wasn't quite as certain as he thought it was. And we're going to go through times like that. We're going to be hindered by unstable faith. We're going to be influenced, and all of us are throughout life, and affected by economic upsets. In verse 9, it says, But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the fire of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth away, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Um, you know, economic upsets face all of us. And there are certain things that, that create greater hardships economically. Uh, obviously, you lose your job or you have some type of life-altering sickness or a uh, change in marriage or something like that. And I was, it's like we were looking at this morning in the, the parable of the talents. Uh, how much different, we were talking about how different people's life situations can be. You know, there are people that go out and they, they buy a car, they may buy two or three cars. It's not a problem for them. And then you've got others who are working two or three jobs and just can't seem to get a hand of it. It's not because they're not, work, or they're not working, they're not putting the effort in. And there's a tendency, particularly when you have what, the type of people that we have in our government today, to look at somebody like Joe Biden that you know has cheated his way all the way through life. 
His son's now using the White House as a place to sell his artwork. And you, so you look at rich people, or you, they look at poor people, you know, or they become poor, and that, that's a real challenge to people. It, there is such a thing. It's why class warfare is so easy to create, because we're challenged with these things. The psalmist even said in Psalm 73, I was envious of the, the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compassed them about as a chain. Violence covered them as a garment. So James is just writing about things that all of us, that people in all of society deal with and then he mentions the one peculiar to Christians, and that's struggling with sinful lust. In verse 14, he says, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The Christian understands that, the death uh, that's created by sin. But you know, it's the everyday warfare everyday warfare of a godly living. A lot of people think that Christians don't struggle like that, but they do and the unsaved don't. They just go ahead and sin. But the Christian is dealing with this nature that he has that's corrupt and that's wicked and that's anti-God, and they want to do right. And it's a struggle. And I, I would say to you, if maybe this is an encouragement, but if you're not struggling against sin... I'd have to question your faith. It's such a regular part. It's an everyday part of life, fighting in spiritual battles and trying to live for the Lord. You remember it was uh, the Apostle Paul that says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. It's not a good thing, I guess, when you're encouraged by somebody else's failure. But these are problematic challenges of persecuted people. They're, they're ordinary things. And James deals with these people. They're scattered all over the place. They've been persecuted. They're away from their homes. And he's just writing to them about things that all of us face. And on down further in the chapter... He, he talks about it, though, even in spite of all these things, that there is a possibility of pure, practical religion. Now, he mentions here also that, that there is plenty of empty religion. Verse, verse 26, he says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Yeah, he seems to be religious. He's got a reputation, or some people have the opinion of him that he's he or she maybe knows the Lord or whatever. There's outward acts that are religious, but he can't control his tongue. Now, you know, later in chapter 3, James will deal with the tongue in about an entire chapter, but here's a guy or a gal that's angry, that's critical. And he says that person who can't control his tongue has empty religion, is, is worthless, vain, is worthless. And so there is that all around us. And he says people are truly self-deceived. 
They have some outward acts. They perhaps attend church and that kind of thing. But there's no life-changing conversion. In fact, they, they may do a pretty good job of fooling people for a while. But when the pressures build up from life, their religion has no power. And he talks about the judge of all religion in verse 27. Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, and he says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth you, or having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. We belong to the Lord. There's not any doubt on His part about it. He knows who those who genuinely know Him. And also in Hebrews 4.13, this God the Father, the judge of all, it says for, that there's no creature that's not manifest, fully known in His sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And so there's plenty of hypocritical, fake religion around, empty, vain religion. But God knows. God knows all about it. But He does say that there is righteous religion. And He talks about the character of it in verse 26 and 27. If any man among you seem to be religious, and brighteth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You know, pure religion is a religion where these outward actions, practices, come from a redeemed heart. Their actions come from a motive of love toward the Lord. And they're undefiled, he says. There is religion that God regards as unstained, not stained by moral and spiritual stains. It is the inward spiritual life that cares for spiritual well-being of unimportant people. He talked about widows. He talked about people that don't have parents. Now, I know the world acts like <laughs> they really care. They put a lot of money and so forth. But that's, you know, when it says visitation here, it's not talking about going on knocking on the door and trying to help them find some government help or not even inviting them to church. The visitation here is talking about oversight, inspection. Pure religion is somebody who wants to find out about those who don't really matter to the world. They don't really matter to anybody else. Orphans. These people do. Because their souls, those souls of those folks are just as important as their own soul is. And it says that they um, desire to see souls saved. Grow in the Lord. It's not really, it is, but it's not really about do you have enough blankets, do you have enough fuel oil, enough food. That, those things are important. Now, this person is first of all concerned for the soul and where that person is going to spend eternity. They want to see these people growing in the Lord. And not only that, here... They visit the fathers, they have an interest, an oversight, an inspection of the, the fatherless and widows, and then right with that, 
to keep oneself, himself unspotted from the world. They're not flirting with the world. They're guarding their hearts and their eyes and their mind. And it's not really, not concerned about everybody else so much with keeping himself unspotted from the world. So the overseeing or inspecting people that are not, that are not important to anybody else, but they're not keeping everybody else's soul. They're worried about their own walking with the Lord. Pure religion is religion where the life and the lip match up. Now that brings us to the largest section, which is in between, and really the major part of this passage. And that is the practice that produces pure religion. We talked about all these troubles that all of us are dealing with, talked about the fact that there's hypocritical religion, vain religion, but there's also pure religion. And he tells what it takes, the primary thing that it takes to have pure religion. He talks about the factory where there's spiritual production. There's a place that the Scripture says that spiritual production comes from, and that's in verses 1 and 2. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. So he's writing to these Christians that used to be in his church that aren't there anymore. And James's letter, if you, if you go to school, you'll learn that this is a Catholic letter, which means uh, it's for a universal church. It wasn't written to any particular church or any particular pastor. It's written to Christians all over the place. That's why people take this. But do you think that hundreds or thousands of Christians passed one letter around to somebody that occasionally met them? That's not the setting of this letter at all. In fact, that's... Uh, a false narrative passed down. James is writing to people who've started their own church and who are in the factory where genuine spirituality is produced, and that's in a local church. Um, it was written to those Christians who started and were meeting in local New Testament churches. So we've read verse 1. The twelve tribes, there he had Jews from every tribe in his church there in Jerusalem, but now they're scattered. Well, where are they? Well, look at verse 26. If any man... What are the next two words? Among you. If any man among you... He's not talking about in a family. He's talking about in a church. Look at verse... Um, Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge? What? Among you. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Look at chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is repeated over and over. And in fact, 
people treat other letters that are these general letters that aren't named to a particular church or a particular pastor or something like that, like all the rest of the New Testament letters, basically. And they say they're just a general letter to Christians. And yet Peter does the same thing in his general letter, his Catholic letter. He says that he's a letter, uh, an elder, a letter. He's, a, he's an elder, and he's writing to the other elders. This is a letter that's going to go from church to church to church. And this is the factory. A New Testament local church is the pillar and ground of the truth. A New Testament local church is the body of Christ. It is also, as verse 2 refers us, it is an environment of trials. And that's something we should never forget. If the church is the body of Christ, I can guarantee this. The place of the hottest battle, spiritual battle on earth, is your church. A church where they preach the truth. A church where people are praying. A church where people are trying to live pure. They're trying to honor the Lord Jesus. And so the factory there is in that local assembly that God has designed and all these trials are producing what it says there in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into dives temptation. Well, it goes on and it talks about patience bringing us along, endurance so that we're perfect and entire, complete and mature in our Christian faith. So the factor of spiritual production is addressed here. And then he mentions the implanted seed of God's Word. In verse 18, James 1, 18, coming to the end of a paragraph, he says, Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. And then over in verse 21, he says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. You know, we, we know that joining the church or being baptized or being moral, learning psychology, giving money, none of those can produce spiritual life. It's begotten by God, as it says there in verse 18, through His Word. Peter says this same thing in 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Or something as simple as Romans ten seventeen. So the faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we have this place that God has designed, a spiritual factory. We got some of the forces on there, the trials and the temptations and so forth. But what's doing the work inside there? is the Word of God. But the thing that's given the most attention in this chapter is the practice that has to take place that utilizes the power of Word of God, and that is the repentant reception of the preached Word. And verse 19, he says this, Wherefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. 
Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And then, of course, it gets down to the pure religion that's produced there at the last verse. The section here gives a thorough description and emphasis upon what the Bible means by to receive with meekness. This is the key for production of pure religion. And it starts with an eagerness to hear. There in verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Now, we are a type of people that if we're ordinary in our church, about four times a week we're going to hear preaching. That can be pretty mundane. We're going to hear things preached over and over that we've heard many times. But he says swift, fast, eager to hear the Word of God. You know, David, who man, a man who had a heart after God, explained that to his son Solomon. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, he says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so thou incline thine ear unto wisdom. I mean, I have to do this all the time. You know, I don't want to hear like I used to. But he's talking about somebody's eager who wants to hear. Thine incline thine, heart into, uh, thine ear into ease and apply thine heart to understand. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. What a difference between the person that sits in the pew and the person who really desires to hear the preaching of the word of God whose soul has a hunger for it. You know, it's, it's been my privilege to hear men preach and teach who made it their life's pursuit not to produce sermons. I've heard some good speakers. But I'm talking about people that it wasn't their produced sermons and get the wording right and the right illustrations. They were just trying to spread a feast for God's sheep. Ezra was like that. The Bible says about Ezra that he, I can find it here, prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Or Peter himself, in 1 Peter 5, 2, he's telling pastors there, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof. There's a man called of God who has a 
It's hard to explain the burden that he has for souls. And so he's going to feed those sheep, sheep of God that belong to God. And so, you know, I think about Pastor Byler. He's a guy like that. He couldn't explain it to you. But you know, I've sat right over there about where Spurgeon is for two and a half years. And listen to him teach through Daniel. And I've got the notes, I'm preaching through it now on Sunday night over at Calvary. But it was, he fed my soul. In fact, it was a joy to go back and forth. It was tired too, but it was to be, to be there on Sunday school in Pastor Russ's class at Calvary. And the same here at Lighthouse. I'll tell you something. That's not common. What a great privilege. But the purpose of that feeding, and this is where the difficulty comes in for receiving the Word of God with meekness, is the purpose of that feeding. Yes, it is to feed the soul, but the soul is not fed unless you present a divine rule for their conduct. It's not just giving them insight. It's telling them, this is what you need to do. This is the way you need to live. This is the way you need to order your life. This is the way you need to think. This is what needs to have all your attention in life. And the Bible says this, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Here's Paul writing to Timothy, who's the pastor there at Ephesus. And he said, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. But the first part of that says they're ruling. They're not just teaching. The purpose is to rule the life. It's to give commands. It's to give like Pastor Russ taught in our adult Sunday school class today. It's to reprove, rebuke, correct, instruct. It's to set a rule for the life. And, and this is difficult for us sinners. Paul wrote to Titus and said the same thing. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, that no man despise you. He was not to let somebody in his church there, and he said they were a bunch of hard-headed people. They had bad character. He said, don't let one of them despise you. Don't let let any of them disregard the things that you're teaching and preaching. The key to overcoming trials and lust is to have true and pure religion in any day. Back when James was written, or today, or any time in between, it's to receive the Word with meekness. Well, what does that mean? Because that's what this is all about. It's the opposite of anger and taking offense. Look at verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You know, I, 
let you in on a little secret. I, probably it's not a secret, but when Pastor Byler preaches and Pastor Russ or myself preaches, it's not hard to tell somebody's angry. <laughs> in fact, sometimes it's real obvious. Like the time when I was up in Elkton and I'd preached, and uh, I'd preached on the fact that if a man won't provide for his house, he's worse than an infidel. And so I was standing there after the service. These were my friends. I, I went there 18 years ago, and I was standing like I always do, with my hands in my pockets. I think Spurgeon remembers this. This guy walked up, and I looked up at him. <laughs> and he wasn't happy, because I don't think he worked really to provide for his wife. His wife worked. I didn't know it. I didn't know the guy. But he was mad at me because I had insulted his manhood because I told him he's worse than an infidel because that's what the Bible says. And after a while, I pulled my hands out of my pocket. (laughs) I didn't have a gun, but I thought at least I ought to be able to... And actually, there were a couple of men, thank the Lord, came up and stood around me they saw what was happening. Now that's, that's been uncommon for me, thank the Lord, in my life. But people get angry when the Word of God insults them. Some object, you know, others are angry. Some begin a campaign to turn others against your preaching. A lot of times they'll have an air of serious spirituality. But notice in verse 20, It says that God says that such people cannot perform God's righteousness. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. How do you respond when you hear preaching of the Word of God? That kind of response that he's talking about there, James says, is spiritual filth. It is overflowing, let's see, Superfluity of naughtiness. The word naughtiness there is a lot. Of, most of the time translated malice. They're just overflowing anger at somebody, somebody who's preaching the word of God. Um, desire to do harm. Again, what is meekness? Receiving the word in meekness. Well, meekness is an outward, deliberate acceptance. It is taken. It happens outward, but it's already happened inside an acceptance of something that's not pleasant. That's what meekness is, something that you know is right, that you surrender to it because you know it's the Lord's will. You obey it. That's meekness in the Bible. The Word of God rebukes the error of our ways, our actions, our thinking, our attitude. It, It rebukes everything about us. The flesh responds, as James says here in a couple of verses, it responds with wrath. But meekness receives the reproof with shame for our guilt. We're corrected. We're humbled. We don't defend ourselves. We don't deceive ourselves. We humbly begin to obey, as he says in verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Meekness is accompanied by grateful confession and change in action. Verse 25, But whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, 
he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Really, the reception of the Word of God, the meek reception, leads to a purposed, getting all my P's in here, a purposed practice of the pastor's preaching. That's what James says. Starting up in verse 22, be ye doers of the Word, coming all the way down to verse 25, looking into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. Now remember, James was written by a God-called pastor. He was a shepherd. He had a massive flock there at one time in Jerusalem, and he still cared for their souls even after they were scattered by persecution. God gave them the truth that they needed to produce true soul and life-saving religion. And Paul... James wrote to these Jews that were scattered. And a few years later, Paul writes to the same people. If you turn back one page, the same church there in in Jerusalem, Hebrews, written to the church in Jerusalem, I believe. And basically he told them the same thing. Paul writes a strong doctrinal letter about the Lord Jesus, how much better He is than a priest, how much better He is than everything in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and all that. And then He comes to chapter 13, and notice what He says in verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who has spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. You're supposed to follow your pastor's faith. In verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. They're overseers. They're watching for your souls, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And third time's a charm, verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints... They of Italy salute you. You want pure religion? You want to be able to hold up no matter what comes in our country? James tells us. And so I ask you today, do you have, are you committed to the preaching of your pastor in your church? Obviously I couldn't say that to every church but I can say that to these two churches if you are committed you will see in these days the production of pure this is a time when there is no purity in our country but you will see the production of pure genuine religion produced by the law of liberty it works in and through you it works out of your life Helps you to overcome those temptations that we're struggling with every day. Helps us to not be wishy-washy in our faith. But if wrath is your response, you're in danger of having vain religion that de- uh, deceives your soul. James, a very practical book. As far as I know, is the first New Testament book written. 
He just told them what we need to hear. Do you receive it?